I invite you to open your Bible again to this morning then to Galatians, the book of Galatians. And we'll be looking at chapter 5. I was originally intending to uh, do the first 12 verses, and then I, I thought we'd do the first six verses, and now we're down to the first five, and I hope we make it through that. Uh, there's, there's a whole lot here, and um, we don't want to, I, I see no reason to rush, but to uh, just chew on these truths that God has given to us. So we'll be looking at, remember last week, Paul was talking about Hagar and Sarah, and there's two families. There's the family of Ishmael, the family of Isaac, and one is the family that is uh, in slavery, and one is the family of freedom. And the Jews, he was saying, uh, belong to the family of Ishmael. They're in bondage because they're still under the law. Well, uh, Paul's going to continue this, this, this theme of freedom and uh, be applying it now very specifically to the Galatian believers and uh, the false teachers that... Uh, that were there. Let's uh, give our attention then. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Let's ask the Lord to bless. Well, Lord Jesus, as you took uh, the few loaves and fishes and multiplied it to feed a multitude, I pray, Lord, that you would um, just take the, the weakness of my words and make them, Lord, um, the evidence of your power and feed your sheep. Uh, we need to be fed. And you know, uh, Lord, how hungry we are. And so I pray that this morning we would experience a Jesus Christ feeding us in his goodness and grace. And we'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, boys and girls, um, I want you to imagine with me a man in prison. All right, he's behind bars. He's been behind bars for a long time. And he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life. It's not fun. And uh, he deserves to be in prison. Boys and girls, he did something very, very bad. And, uh, and so the judge sentenced him to spend the rest of his life in jail. Well, one day, imagine uh, the, uh, the warden came to him and unlocked his door and opened it wide and said, Sir, you're free to go. And the man said, Free to go where? And the warden said, Free to go wherever you'd like to go. Um, someone has paid a large amount of money and the judge has granted you a full pardon, and you are free to go and go back to your life, go back to your family. You're a free man. Think of how excited uh, that man would be, boys and girls, as he walks out of his cell. But think how silly and crazy it would be if, if, if uh, you, you saw that man walking down the corridor, uh, headed for the front door, headed for his freedom, but suddenly he saw there was an open cell door off uh, across the block and suddenly made a beeline for that, uh, that cell, ran into it, and slammed the door shut. You, th you think the man had lost his mind. I, he was on his way to freedom. 
Why would he go back into bondage? Why would he want to stay in prison when he was free to leave? Well, that's exactly the question that Paul is asking the Galatian Christians. Because they're being tempted to do precisely what that man did. They had lived all their life in bondage to sin, bondage to death, uh, in bondage to the law that says, right, the soul that sins shall surely die. But Jesus had paid a great price to set them free. And they had been walking in their freedom. But now they're being tempted to go back into bondage, back into slavery. And Paul wants to, uh, in, in Galatians chapter 5 here, just making very, very clear to them what's on the table in this Judaizer heresy and what's on the table if they actually go along with that false teaching. And so this morning we're going to look at um, first the freedom of the gospel and then the fatal flaw of legalism, and then we'll be looking at the faith that saves. First, the freedom of the gospel. Verse 1 here is, is packed with wonderful truth, gospel truth. Notice the verse begins with a declaration, for freedom Christ has set us free, and it ends with a command, stand firm in it therefore. And let's take them in that order. First, the declaration. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And that declaration, also notice, has two parts. Uh, there is a, um, a declaration of what Christ has accomplished, and then what Christ intends. And we'll look, first of all, what Christ has accomplished. Christ has set us free. That's the great proclamation of the gospel. Past tense, accomplished action. This is what Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross. He gained our freedom. That's what he meant when he said, Tetelestai. It is finished. The purchasing of our freedom, the accomplishment of our redemption was completed, finished there at the cross. We were set free at that moment. All those who were given to Jesus Christ are set free in principle from the, the corruption and the condemning power of our sin, the deadly penalty of the law. And Paul's going to show here in chapter 5, uh, as we move through, that we're also set free from the bondage to continue to sin. We are, we are free to walk in newness of life. We're free to walk by faith and in love. We're free to obey. These are the freedoms that have been granted to us, given to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, here, the emphasis seems very specifically to be on the freedom that we have in relation to the law. And so as John Stott explains, the Christian freedom is a freedom of conscience from the tyranny of the law. It is the freedom of acceptance with God and of access to God through Christ. Uh, one of the great burdens, I would think, of, of being in prison is not just that you're in a, um, a, a place that's not well decorated, uh, not very warm, it's not gazelle. The, the great burden of uh, a prison is, is lack of access to loved ones. You can't go see your family. You can't tuck your children into bed. You can't, um, you can't spend time with your spouse. You have no access to them. Well, the bondage of sin does the same. We have no access by sin. Your sin has separated you from God, the Bible says. And so in sin, we have no access to God the Father. And we have no acceptance. We cannot be accepted by God the Father. 
This is uh, the bondage of sin. But what Christ has done is set us free from the tyranny of the law. Free to um, the, the freedom of acceptance with God and access to God. So Stott continues, what Christ has done in liberating us is not so much to set our will free from the bondage of sin as to set our conscience free from the guilt of sin. Let me read it one more time. What Christ has done in liberating us is not so much to set our will free from the bondage of sin as to set our conscience free from the guilt of sin. Uh, Christians will get this confused. And they'll think that because they find within themselves a continuing desire to sin, they must not really be a Christian. Well, no, that, that's, that's the work of sanctification, to continue to mold our wills uh, according to the will of God. That's the process of sanctification. The freedom that we have immediately by faith in Christ is, is that our conscience has been set free from the guilt of sin. We are pardoned. And so the thing that distinguishes a true Christian is not the absence of any desire to sin, but the ability to say through repentant tears and by spirit-wrought faith, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. That's the Christian profession. Alistair Begg tells the story of tucking his daughter into bed one night, his young daughter, and, and she asked him, Daddy, how many sins will Jesus forgive? How many sins is Jesus willing to forgive? And do you know what his answer was? He said, all of them. All of them. That is the Christian confidence. That's the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. We're free from the guilt of all of our sin. We're free from all of our shame. We're free from the death that we deserve, the condemnation that we were under. We are free to live then, you see, as the beloved children of God, confident of full acceptance and full access. That is what Jesus has done for us. Now notice what Jesus intends for us. For freedom, Christ has set us free. It could be, you, we could easily just skip over that, but it's a very important to the text that Jesus intends those whom he has set free to act like it, to live in the freedom. He did not set us free so we could go back into the bondage of a guilty conscience. He did not set us free so we can go back into the bondage of fear of death or back into the bondage of trying to earn God's approval by how, how often we're doing our devotions or, or how well we're dealing with our besetting sin. That's bondage. Jesus desires his children to live in their freedom, to delight in their freedom, to embrace their freedom, to live in a, with a joyful confidence that they are, by grace, through faith, the precious, treasured children of God. And that because of Jesus Christ, they are irrevocably heirs of the new heaven and the new earth. I don't think we emphasize that enough, what Jesus intends for his children. There is a strain in Reformed Christianity. It's probably true in other, uh, in other branches of the church as well, but it's definitely true in uh, in. in in some of the ways that we think about or live out uh, Reformed Christianity, there, there's a strain that discourages 
bold confidence in these things. That encourages people to focus on their, the reality of their sin and warns people against the, uh, concerning the dangers of, of uh, false assurance or presumption. Well, we don't want to have false assurance, but it is not presumption to confidently claim all that is freely yours by grace through faith. It is not presumption to lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of you. It's not presumption to live in the joy and peace and full assurance that Jesus has purchased for you with his own blood. It's precisely what he intended for you when he shed it. And so lay hold of the freedom, the assurance, the joy that Jesus intends for you. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. And the command then flows directly from that. Because of what Christ has accomplished and because of what Christ intends, there is a command, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now apply to the Galatian believers, this is clearly Paul telling them, reject the false teaching of the Judaizers. Um, we have a responsibility as the children of God to fight for what Jesus intends for us, to fight for our assurance in the gospel, not in our efforts. We have the responsibility to stand firm in the freedom He has purchased for us, to stubbornly refuse to go back into bondage. And Paul specifically means, in this context, the bondage of legalism. And that's what he addresses in verses 2 through 4. The fatal flaw, the failure of legalistic Christianity. So the, the Galatian believers are being tempted uh, to give up their blood-bought freedom, which is their, confident, their confidence in their acceptance before God and their access to God in Jesus Christ. They're being tempted to give that up by adopting the error of the Judaizers. Uh, these are Jewish men uh, who have come into the church and they are teaching, we're told in Acts 15:1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. At least they're clear. <clears throat> unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, unless you come under the, the rubric of the Mosaic system, you cannot be saved. Paul's response is, if you get circumcised, you cannot be saved. And he could not be more clear or more forceful. Look, pay attention. I, Paul, the apostle, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, on those terms, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You are obligated to keep the whole law, and you are severed from Christ and have fallen from grace. Now that is about as strong as you can get. And, and undoubtedly, there would have been people in the church who would say, have said to the apostle, uh, Paul, you don't have to be so extreme. And we have a we have a disagreement here, but good people. Uh, can differ on these things. I mean, you're acting like these Judaizers aren't even Christian. And Paul would say, it's exactly what I mean. These are two different religions. The reason Paul is so forceful, you see, is this is not just a generic 
theological dispute. It is actually about the core of the gospel message. This is about how you get saved, how you are made right with God, how you escape the wrath that is to come, how you gain entrance into the eternal kingdom. That's what this is about. And Paul makes explicitly clear that to receive circumcision as a means of gaining salvation is to reject the gospel and to forfeit every benefit, every advantage that comes through Jesus Christ. Christ, it will be of no advantage to you. Boys and girls, um, imagine you're walking down the, uh, the sidewalk and you see a a fence that's freshly painted. The man's actually painting the fence. It's very pretty. And you ask the man, uh, do you mind if I touch it? Is it okay if I touch it? And the man says, sure, go ahead, but it'll make your arm fall off. Would you touch it? Do you like your arm? Does your arm have some advantages to you? Yeah, if you, I mean, you're not going to touch if your arm's going to fall off. Well, Paul says to the Galatians, if you go this route, if you accept this teaching, you lose Jesus. You're severed from Christ. He's no advantage to you. Think of all the advantages that are gained in Jesus Christ. It's the advantage of life over death. It's the advantage of forgiveness over condemnation. It's the advantage of the Holy Spirit instead of being left to the devil. It's the blessing of adoption and sanctification and justification and glorification Every advantage, every spiritual blessing that we have comes through Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying all of those blessings are all lost to those who look to their own obedience to make themselves right with God or find the favor of God. And we just have to be perfectly clear about that. Because to the extent that we right, are looking to our adherence to religious rules or commitment to religious orthodoxy uh, as the things that, that give us acceptance and access, uh, to that extent we're rejecting the gospel and forfeiting Christ. Now why is that the case? Because salvation by the law and salvation by grace, acceptance by what you do and acceptance by what Christ has done, are mutually exclusive religions. They, they cannot be combined. You can't be saved by Christ and by circumcision or to find favor with God by grace and by your efforts. They, neither the law nor the gospel will allow that sort of syncretism, that, that sort of com combining. Um, Paul begins by pointing out the nature of the law, verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. He's just reminding his readers that, you know, these Judaizers are talking about law, law, law. And Paul says, well, okay, let's just, re let's remember what the law is and what the law says. If you take the law as, as your means of gaining favor with God, the law says you have to do the whole thing. You got to keep all of it. And you have to keep all of it perfectly. So, um, if you break the law once, just once, you will die. And since everyone has broken the law, no one can be justified by the law. There's, there's no one who, who can find favor with God this way. And so, you see, the law forbids blending of salvation by grace and salvation by law-keeping. 
Law says, no, if you're going to do law, it's going to be law. But the gospel also forbids that, that way of trying to combine things. So Paul says in, in 5 verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. Paul, in one sentence, captures the essential things about the gospel. The essential person of the gospel is Jesus. The essential doctrine of the gospel is justification. The essential principle of the gospel is grace. And Paul reminds these, these Galatian believers to embrace legalism is to lose Jesus. To seek your righteousness in what you do or what you believe is to be severed from Christ. And to be severed from Christ is, well, it's, it's to be as lost as a person could possibly be. To be severed from Christ is the, is the most awful thing that could ever possibly happen to you. There's, there's nothing worse. And how does that happen? Well, it happens because if, if people want to be justified by the law, you see, this is the core argument Paul is having with the Judaizers, and, it, and it's the core issue of the gospel. How can a sinful man be made right with God? How can a sinner be accepted by God and have access to God? And the Judaizers and every other human religion says it's by the law. It's by your efforts, by what you do. And Paul says those who've chosen that position have been severed from Christ and fallen from grace. Friends, he said, this is the, the fatal flaw of legalistic Christianity. And it is as alive today as it ever was in Paul's day. Grand Rapids is full of people who trust their religious practice to some extent to give them standing with God. They go to the right church. They read from the right version of the Bible. They sing the right songs in worship. They wear the right clothes in worship. They believe the right doctrines. They adhere to the right moral code. They believe the right things. That is legalistic Christianity. I've asked people the uh, EE question, if you were to die tonight and God said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And people who've been born and raised in the church uh, will say things like, well, I go to church. Or I've, I've heard people say, well, because I believe. Well, the devil believes. You see, we're not... If, if, we, if we answer that way, and if we think that our faith the fact that we believe the Bible, the fact that we believe in God or the fact that we believe in Jesus, that we think that our faith is, is, is uh, somehow a good work that we do which God will accept as the ground of our justification. If you think that the fact that you believe is the thing that you can bring, it's just law. We're not saved by faith or because of faith, we're saved through faith, the faith that clings to Jesus. So if you're looking to the fact that you believe for your assurance rather than to Jesus for your assurance, you're living by the law. You see, the gospel, it's, it's about grace, isn't it? Grace is the driving principle of the gospel. Grace is God's unmerited favor and kindness to you because of Jesus Christ. 
So that just, right, stark contrast with the law. Law says you do the work, you get the reward. The gospel says you don't do the work. Jesus did the work. You cast everything you are and have on him and trust in him alone and you get the reward all by grace. It's why you can't mix the two. They're entirely different principles. And therefore you have to make a choice. You, you, you can't hold on to both principles. This is, the, this is the fatal flaw of legalistic Christianity. I believe the right things and I do the right things. I believe in Jesus and I'm quite confident that I'm, I'm doing my devotions uh, fairly well and, and, and I'm, I'm trying my best to live a Christian life. And, and these, are, these are my grounds of hope when I stand before God on the last day. Well, it's got to be one or the other. What are you trusting in? You see, the Christian profession is my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Just as I am without one plea but that thy blood was shed for me. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the Christian profession. And that's, you see, the faith that will transform us and the faith that saves us. Verse 6, Paul will talk about the transforming power of that faith. Verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Notice again how neatly Paul captures the Christian stance in this world. The Christian lives through the Spirit. The Christian, and, and when Paul is talking about through the Spirit, he means in contrast to through the flesh. The flesh is what man can do. The Spirit is what only God can do. The flesh, in a sense, stands for religion, for rules, regulations. The Spirit stands for the things of God, for life and health and peace and love and joy. So, so the Christian, the true Christian, you see, lives through the Spirit. Is he's, he is a, uh, something that's been born again by the Spirit of God. He's someone who's filled with that Spirit, empowered by that Spirit, to believe in Jesus and to endure in that faith until we receive the reward. And it is by faith, then, you see, that, that the Spirit teaches us and helps us to believe and, and, and to look to Jesus Christ and to hear the promises and receive those promises and take them to ourselves. And that's how we live. So when Paul says, by faith, the contrast is by work. Okay, That's the law. We don't live by effort, by human effort, by what we can do, by keeping the law. We live by faith. We live by believing all that God has promised to us in Jesus Christ. And because God has promised to forgive us our sin, we believe it's true. And because God has promised freedom of access to His throne, we believe it's true in spite of our sin. And because God has promised us an inheritance in a new heaven and a new earth, robed with, with glory, crowned with righteousness, we believe it's true. And we eagerly then, believing it is true, eagerly await for it. 
And wait again, wait is in contrast to work. We're not working for it. We're waiting for it. And doing so eagerly. Eagerly waiting for the day when we will be crowned as the righteous sons and daughters of the Most High God. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved His appearing. Christians, you see, as we believe the gospel, as we reject legal Christianity, let me just ask you this. Are you looking forward to the day of judgment or are you fearing the day of judgment? And I think most of us, if we're honest, will say, well, a little bit of both. The fact is, whatever it is in you that fears the day of judgment It's your legal nature. It's your hoping you've done enough. Hoping you're good enough. Um, Hoping that there's there's some way, right, that that God will find favor with you or God will be pleased with you and God will reward you. And so I, I I just want you to pay attention to that and to take the admonition here of of this text, to reject it. If you are afraid to die, either you've never truly come to Christ, I mean, or we've not embraced the full truth of the gospel. Because when we embrace the full truth of the gospel, we will love His appearing. Now, I'm not saying if, you, if you're afraid to die, you're not a Christian. So don't walk out of here thinking I've just cast you out of the kingdom. I'm just saying I'm afraid to die at times. Uh, it's, it's, I've, never, I've never done it before, right? I remember talking to my dad. Dad, are you afraid to die? And, and it was so good to hear dad say, no, I'm not afraid to die. I'm, I, the dying part doesn't sound like fun. But I'm not afraid to meet God. Why not? Because he lived such a good life? No, 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 no. Because he believed the gospel. This is a truth that that comes right down to where we live. But as we believe the gospel, you see, then we can say, no condemnation now I I dread Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and robed in righteousness divine, bold I lay claim, right, to Christ. uh, Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold. Why? Because the gospel is true. And because we live by faith. Stand firm in it. Don't give in to your legal tendency. Don't give in to to the devil who accuses you or your conscience that, that accuses you of being too poor a Christian to have confidence. God's saving love does not flinch when we fall into sin. Peter was no less a beloved disciple when he was denying Christ. The gospel is too deep for that. You see, it's too, it's too great for that. Stand in your freedom. Yes, you are a great sinner. It is more true than you know. But Jesus is a great Savior, and you are never looking to your righteousness. You're looking to His. Don't let death frighten you. When death frightens you, look it in the face and stare it down with faith. 
What is Jesus promised to me? Is Jesus sufficient to save me? Is Jesus sufficient to protect me? Is it true that he's broken the power of death? Is it true that death is my entrance into the glory of heaven? Is it true? Then speak that truth to your, to your legal heart and your frightened heart. And don't let anyone bring you back into the bondage of, of legalistic rules that you need to do this or you need to do, to do that in order to have assurance. No, you need to live in the joy and the peace and the freedom because of what Jesus did, because of what Jesus promises. If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And brothers and sisters, then the charge that we have from the gospel this morning is to live in that freedom. It's what Jesus has accomplished. It's what Jesus intends and it's what Jesus commands. Live in the freedom. May God grant it. Amen. Oh, Father, I just thank you. The gospel is so much greater than we imagined. And, and there is a power in believing it that is, uh, Lord, utterly transforming I thank you, Father, that you've given us Jesus and that in giving us Jesus, we've gained every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And Lord, I thank you that in Jesus we have freedom. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from shame. Freedom from condemnation. We have the freedom to boldly call you Father and to confidently look forward to the appearing of Jesus Christ for Lord our day of, 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 of judgment has already taken place when Jesus Christ was judged on the cross for our sin Father I pray this morning for any this morning who are trusting uh, today in uh, their legal righteousness and wonder why their life lacks joy and peace and confidence before God Lord Lord we, are, we believe, and yet, Lord, um, we, we lack faith. Help our unbelief. But, Lord, for any today who have, have never savingly trusted in Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, that today would be the day as they realize to, to be without Christ is to be utterly lost. And for those of us who have accepted Christ and yet struggle with doubts and, and with fears, Lord God, help the gospel to ring true and give us by your Holy Spirit the power to lay hold of it. And may it transform our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's uh, confess the gospel truth together in song. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Let's stand together.